Good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Recreate Church. Glad to see you. When I got up this morning and we went out of the car and I'm like, oh man, it's a pretty day. It's a pretty day. I hope people still show up because it's like days when it is, when it's too nasty a weather and days when it's too pretty. I'm like, ooh, well, but you know what? You got here and you were supposed to be here. We prayed for you to be here, so we give God the glory. Got one announcement before we get into it. We're having a a church cleanup day, Saturday, March 4th. That's this Saturday, right? That's this Saturday, 8.30 a.m. We need at least a handful more people to sign up for that. If you're willing, that's a sign-up sheet right over here on this table. Um, We're probably going to move the chairs. We'll work on the floor. There's a few little fix-it things if you're a handyman. There's a few little fix-it things that need to be done, and... And we're going to try to uh, to clean clean up, you know, spring cleaning, because um, we're not in here every day, but we're here a lot, and we drink coffee, and we drop crumbs, and we do a lot of stuff. So we try to keep it nice and clean. So if you're willing to do that, you can sign up on the sign up sheet back there in the guest services desk, and I'll appreciate you very very much. You know, one thing about me is most of the time. I'm living for the future. I've always had my head in the clouds a little bit. Did any of you ever raise a kid like that? God bless my mama. Because, uh, you know, I would be in school or do whatever I'm supposed to be doing. I'm thinking way, way out there. You know, I'm, I'm somewhere out in about the orbit of Saturn when I'm supposed to be on Earth. I was one of those kids. I'm kind of one of those grown-ups now. Uh, I still find myself living for the future more than the past. I mean, sometimes I look ahead and... It seems like our world's on a downhill slide. And we do know from the scriptures that things are going to get worse before they get better. We know that for certain. But as tough as it can be sometimes, I can tell you this much. God is not finished. Your story is not written. It's not over yet. I mean, I don't know what burdens you carried into this room today. But God is not finished with them. Maybe you look back in the past and say, man, it's whew, it was so much better back then. You know, I've, I've thought this over. So many of the reasons why the past seems better sometimes is either, A, if you were a kid, probably somebody else was paying the bills. Can I get a witness? Uh-huh. Somebody else was paying the bills. Or B, you've already sorted out the uncertainty of that stage. And you look at it and and you know that you live through it. But today and tomorrow you don't know. And you're paying the bills today. And the bills ain't paid yet today. So we can look back at the past and, and think, oh man, it was easier back then. But I want you to know, even if your future looks a little intimidating, if your present looks a little intimidating, God is at work. Your story isn't finished and God's story isn't finished. You cannot change the past. But every single decision you make changes the future a little bit. And as you trust God with your decisions, your future is transformed. You trust God, and as you go forward, things are different than they were. Will they seem different? It's just like um, if you eat one salad today, you will not be skinny tomorrow. I have experimented with this and have found that to be the case. It's like I'm... You, you eat a salad, like, am, I, am I skinny yet? I still seem to be fat. Um, 
So it doesn't work. But every time you trust God and you trust him with the decision, the future does change. It just takes time. It's a little hard not to look back with some sentimentality at times. I'm not a super sentimental guy, but, but I get a little nostalgic sometimes. Um, is anyone else struggling with this idea that the, the 90s were over 20 years ago? Is that some of y'all were not there for the 90s? God bless your young little hearts. Or some of y'all, it was a vaguest, the, the 90s were a very vague memory. And the only thing you remember is Barney and Power Rangers from the 90s. But uh, where were you in 1999? Where were you? Okay. Oh, I get all kinds of answers and I can't hear a single one of them. That's because I have uh, husband and dad ears that can't hear anything when there's a lot of other things going on. But you're, the man in your house isn't like that. They hear everything you say. Huh, what's that, honey? Um, I'll tell you where I was in 99. I was in a 90s youth group, and that was a wild place to be, a 90s youth group. Um, it was different. Uh, there's some of you who may have been around for a 90s youth group, and um, it was, I don't know. You, there was lots of T-shirts. It was like a T-shirt era with these T-shirt messages. We're going to save the world with T-shirts. Yeah. We're going to have these, these t-shirts that's got Jesus on it, and we're going to save the world that way. There were, like, trips to Carowinds. I don't have any idea what that has to do with Jesus. But if you were a youth group kid in the 90s, I guarantee you went to Carowinds sometime, if you were anywhere in proximity of Carowinds. Um, there were these WWJD bracelets. Remember those? WWJD. What would Jesus do? I'll tell you what Jesus would do. He would probably go talk to the weird, depressed kid that showed up at youth group. Um, that's probably what Jesus would have done. He wasn't worried about the bracelet so much. WWJD, though, was kind of my segue into ministry for the first time. I wasn't super involved in the youth group in my home church for when I was kind of coming up. I would do some things now and then. But the way I got in, somehow, I don't know how this happened, but uh, the guy who was leading the youth group at the time cornered me after church one Sunday and said, I I'm going to be gone for the next six weeks. I need you to lead the youth group. I was like, should I come to a youth group meeting first? Because I don't remember having come to a youth group meeting before. But he's like, ah, you'll be fine. Oh, okay. And we were doing the WWJD material. I remember it very well. And the first week was so bad. Not the material, but me. My delivery of the material was so bad. I think I sat in a chair and just kind of gave it monotone. You couldn't imagine that now. Uh, I didn't have the passion, the excitement for it. But after the first week, it got better and it got better. And I've kept on teaching the Bible ever since. Um, if you were a youth group kid in the 90s, you had the CDs, right? You have, have like a stack of CDs, or like the Christian contemporary CDs, the WOW CDs. Anybody ever have any of the WOW CDs through the years? Those are pretty good. I don't know if they still make them. That's like, see, who makes CDs anymore? I mean, it's not even, CDs aren't a thing anymore. Um, there's a few it's, you know, you stream everything, but, um, every nineties youth group kid had at least one DC talk CD or at least one DC talk song. And that was the song Jesus freak. And, uh, that I love that to this day. I can rap every single word. Don't make me prove it because I might, but, uh, we'll save that for later. We ain't got time for that right now, but maybe later. I got to teach the kids the rest of the parts and we'll just do it all. Um, the term Jesus freak, it, it feels a little uncomfortable, I guess. Jesus freak is a term that came out of the 60s and 70s and it started with the hippies. With these hippies 
who used to be in, into like drugs, into hookup culture, but then they turned from that and they turned to Jesus. And they, start, they were still all about peace and love, but they were finding it in Jesus. And because they turned away from the culture, that, the prevailing culture of drugs and hooking up, they were called freaks for, for following Jesus. And it was meant to be an insult, but instead they just rolled with it. Like, hey, yeah, I'm a Jesus freak. We're all about that. I had a, a friend growing up, he, he had a license plate that had Jesus freak on the license plate for years. Dustin Montgomery, he had Jesus freak on his license plate for like 15 years. And uh, it was like a, it was a whole thing. So we had this bit of a, of a Jesus freak um, comeback in the late 90s because DC Talk and this song. And they later partnered with Voice of the Martyrs to, to publish a book about all the, quote, Jesus freaks through the years who had laid down their life for Jesus. And, and uh, we tend to think of the historical martyrs like, like the 12 apostles, like um, the guy we're going to be talking about today, another famous person. But you, did you know that more people laid down their life for Jesus in the 20th century than in all the centuries before that. And I'd say the 21st century has got a pretty doggone good start, although I haven't seen those figures. There's still people laying down their life for Jesus. There's still, there's still Jesus freaks out there. So um, when I was in that youth group, me and my buddy, we decided we were going to dress up as Jesus freaks at Halloween because they had the Hillsville Safe Halloween at the time. Like, we're going to be Jesus freaks. We're going to go witness. We, so we put on our Jesus T-shirts, of course, because it's the 90s. And what does a Jesus freak look like? I have no idea, but we decided it's you paint your hair blue and spike it. Can you imagine that? And I think me and Katie were dating at the time. She, she put, she made my hair blue and spiked it. And I couldn't grow any facial hair at the time, so she drew some in for me. She made a man out of me. Uh, I could not grow facial hair at the time. And uh, we like had a John 3.16 t-shirt on and we painted messages up our arms. I can't remember if we wrote what we wrote. It might have been Jesus freak on it because, and I'm thinking, yeah, man, we're really going to witness. We're really going to get some people saved. And I think mostly we just got some people confused because our emphasis was a little more on the freak part than the Jesus part. Our intention was good. Our execution was not so good. See, what I understand a little better now is being a Jesus freak is a lot less about Look in the part, okay? It's more about trusting Jesus even when it's tough, even when it costs you, still standing with Him, even when that means a lot of pain for you. Today we're going to talk about the original Jesus freak. The guy who was the first one to lay down his life for his faith in Jesus. Um, he's a major side character in the story of Jesus that we've been following in the Gospel of Mark. We are in the Gospel of Mark today, chapter 6. And he's going to show us a passion worth losing our head over. We're in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 19. I'm going to tell most of this as a story, but we're going to start out with a verse to get us anchored in the Scriptures. Jesus is beginning to get well known at this time, and King Herod, the ruler of that area, is, is, he's got, Jesus gets his attention, but Herod has mistakenly mixed him up with another spiritual leader, and we're going to find out who that is. So, here we are, John 6.14, or Mark, rather, 6.14. Now King Herod heard of him, that is to say Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Let's stop and pray. Heavenly Father, please speak into our hearts now. 
about what it really means to be committed no matter the cost. And I pray you'll awaken in us a passion that's worth losing our heads for. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the time of this story, Jesus is doing a lot of miracles. He's traveling around Galilee. He's preaching. He's teaching. His purpose was to transform lives. Not to get famous, but if you go around transforming lives, people are going to hear about it. And the name of Jesus rose up to the the highest seats of power, including the ruler of that region. Now some people... Considering who Jesus was, they're like, well, maybe he's the prophet Elijah who somehow returned, or one of these other prophets who somehow returned. King Herod had his own theory. He said, I think, what if Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead? And we say, whoop. I mean, there's like, we need like a record scratch noise. Wait a minute, John the Baptist is dead. When did that happen? We didn't get told about that. If we're doing a read through the book of the Mark, book of Mark, this is the first time we've heard what happened to John the Baptist, and how does Herod know he's dead? Well, Herod has the inside track. Herod had something to do with it. See, Mark kind of tells this story in reverse. He doesn't tell us how John the Baptist came to his end. He starts with the end and then works back. If it was like like a cheesy movie, you would see this head being put on a platter, and then the camera would freeze. And you'd hear John's, uh, a voiceover from John. Yep, that's me. Bet you're wondering how I got in this mess. And then it would come back and tell the whole story. Okay, do you know what John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Same middle name. Same middle name. I'm going to let that one, that's, that's one of them crockpot jokes. You'll get it two to, four, two to six hours from now, okay? The, okay, yeah, same middle name. Um, he is not called John the Baptist because of a denominational identity. That, that wasn't a thing back then. He was called John the Baptist because of his habit of baptizing people. He could have just as easily been called John the Baptizer. And why was he baptizing people? It was in preparation for Jesus. He was turning the hearts of the nation to Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus, the hype man, the opening act. His job was to prepare people prepare the nation of Israel for the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior. So when he baptized people, it was not for salvation or after salvation. It was in preparation for salvation. It was was a part of getting their hearts ready in repentance. So when Jesus arrived, they would be ready to receive the forgiveness. Now that's what John was doing up to this point, last time we saw him. And it was working. Lots of people were following Jesus. Lots of people turned to Jesus. But a lot of stuff has, stuff has happened since then. Where has John been this whole time? Well, part of the time, he was in a dungeon. For maybe six months or a year leading up to this story, he was in a dungeon. And who put him in the dungeon? King Herod did. If you've read the Gospels, you've heard the name of Herod. But there's like a bunch of Herods. There's six of them, six Herods in the Gospels. And most of the time it just calls them Herod. So it's a little confusing. It all started with uh, a guy named Antipater who once saved the life of Julius Caesar. He was from Idumea or Edom, which is right next to Judea. And he saved the life of Julius Caesar in battle. And as a reward, Julius Caesar appointed him to a political position in Judea. And Antipater, who's a slick guy, he, he 
through a series of schemes and plots, he rose to become the ruler of the region under the Romans, and he had his sons appointed as rulers after him. One of those sons was named Herod, and he later became known as Herod the Great. Why do they call him Herod the Great? Well, it wasn't because he was a sweetheart. See, Herod is most famous, King Herod the Great, is, is most famous as the bad guy in the Christmas story. Um, Herod married into an influential Jewish family, and he began to call himself the king of the Jews. He really was very power-hungry, and he got that power. Uh, he was called king, but that was more of a title. He was really a governor. He got the power that he wanted, but it made him, it made him very paranoid. And I do not say this lightly, it made him insane. This guy was so jealous of losing his power that he actually had some of his wives and sons executed because he thought they were plotting against him. Were they? I don't know. But imagine how paranoid you'd have to be to have your kid executed because you thought you might lose your power. So what do you think Herod the Great did when he heard about a baby boy born in Bethlehem who was supposed to be king of the Jews. Oh man, he was upset about it. And he sent his soldiers to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And Jesus and his family barely escaped. So Herod's not real good with kids. But that didn't stop him from having a bunch. He had a bunch of kids. Some of them carried the Herod name. It, it became sort of like their last name or sort of like the title these Herods, this Herod family, they were just as twisted as he was. Uh, I don't think they would be invited on the Mari Povich show because their story was too unbelievable. It was too messed up. Okay. The Herod in this story, uh, the Herod in this story is one of the sons of Herod the Great. His name is Herod Antipas. He was named after Antipater, his grandfather. He was the ruler of Galilee. And he's called King Herod here, but once again, he's not really a king, he is a governor, truly. Now, Antipas must have been one smooth cat, because one day he visits his brother, another Herod, called Herod Philip. And while he's there, he sweet-talks Herod Philip's wife, and she decides to leave Herod Philip and get married to Herod Antipas. And her name was Herodias. Does that sound a little familiar? So Herod and Herodias got married? What a strange thing that they have the right, the same name. Well, there's a reason for that. Because Herodias was the daughter of another one of the brothers, the sons of Herod the Great. His name was Aristobulus, and that was Herodias' dad. So Philip, Herod Philip married his niece, Herodias. So, when Herod Antipas stole her away, Herodias was already his sister-in-law and his niece, and now she's his wife. I told you, they wouldn't get invited on, oh, it gets better. Herodias had a daughter with Philip beforehand. Okay. Her name is Salome. It's not given in the scriptures, but um, a historian tells us it's Salome. And Salome becomes Herod Antipas's stepdaughter, but she was already his niece and his great-niece. 
And then later in the story, we're going to see that she does a very provocative dance. And um, it's pretty clear that being related to her in three ways already did not stop him from enjoying the show. These are twisted folks. The Herods had no problems with hooking up with family members. So here's where John the Baptist comes back into our story. Herod Antipas sort of claimed to be a believer. He probably was not. This was probably a way for him to pacify the Jewish people he ruled. Most of his people were Jews. And in order to make them happy, he acted sort of like he believed the Jewish way. He didn't really practice it. And they weren't really happy with some of the things he was doing. But he still, he kept up appearances. And he would invite John the Baptist to visit him sometime. Now and then, John would come by and they would talk about faith. Herod Antipas respected John, even feared John, because he was sure John was a real prophet. But the thing is about, like, a real messenger from God is they're not always going to tell you what you want to hear. It's not always going to be comforting messages. A message that comes from the Lord is sometimes going to be the message that you, you need to straighten up the mess in your life. You need to deal with the stuff in your life. And Herod had some stuff in his life. He had stole his sister-in-law slash niece. So there's a couple of problems there. And uh, you know the subject had to come up in some of their conversations. As a matter of fact, Herod Antipas might have brought it up himself because he would have viewed it as a political problem. Remember, he's ruling a bunch of Jews in Galilee, and they, they believe very much in the sanctity of marriage, and, and he's stolen his brother's wife away, and they're not happy with that. And he probably says, he probably considers it a political problem, but John shows him that it's a spiritual problem. What he did was straight up wrong. It was adultery, and he needed to repent. Now, to Herod Antipas's credit, he did feel guilty about it. He knew he should not have stolen his sister-in-law slash niece. Maybe he wasn't really a believer, but he knew something about right and wrong. Talking with John made Herod feel very uncomfortable, and yet he keeps inviting John back. Maybe deep down inside he knew he needed to deal with the mess. And maybe he would have, except for one little wrinkle in our story. On one of the times that... John visits Herod. Herodias gets in on the conversation. You remember Herodias? This is now the woman married to Herod Antipas, who used to be his sister-in-law, who is still his niece. Weird times. She was furious at being called out for adultery. She hated John. She wanted John done. Um, She demanded that Herod have John put to death. But Herod refused. He, he was afraid to put John to death because he knew John was sent from God. And I think deep down, Herod Antipas knew he was wrong and it would be wrong to, to kill John. But he did have John thrown into the dungeon hoping that would be enough for Herodias. It was not enough for Herodias. She wasn't finished. Now, in those days, there was a huge imbalance of power between men and women. And that's most of human history that has been the case. And uh, praise God, Jesus came along and, uh, you know, we're all children in God's sight. He, he changed a lot of that. Um, but even for a royal person like Herodias, she didn't have much direct power. She could not really stand up to her husband directly so much. So 
That didn't stop her. She cooks up this plot. And it sounds like something that you would dig out of some like true crime website on the internet. Don't go looking. After John had been in prison for a while, Herodias came up with a plan. Herod's birthday was coming up soon, and that was the perfect time to put this plan into action. The day of the banquet came. All of the important politicians, all the power brokers in Galilee were there, and they were drinking, and they were partying. And Herodias sends out her daughter, Salome, to perform a dance. Now, Salome's probably in her mid to late teens at this time, and we are spared the details of this dance, but it's fair to say it was uh, very provocative. If it happened today, it'd probably be on TikTok. And it would be like a raunchy TikTok dance, and that girl would have a lot of subscribers because it, it seems like that way. Now, Herod did not mind the dance. She was his stepdaughter slash niece slash great niece, but he's pretty obviously would not mind adding another slash to the description. It's hard to say what's worse. Herod Antipas lusting after this girl or her own mother putting her up to it. That's messed up. Messed up. She pimped out her daughter for a revenge plot. That is messed up stuff. So Herodias must have known how Antipas would have reacted, that he would be all about that. And this was her chance. So it's like all kinds of cringe. I don't know. Is that a word that young people, st- do y'all young people still use the word cringe? Or is it cringe to say cringe? I can't keep up. Okay. I'm afraid I've, I've missed the boat. And I try to look up the meaning of words because one time from this stage, I greatly misused some uh, teenage slang. And I was uh, mortified to find out later. <laughs> So I, I always check Urban Dictionary and mostly avoid those things. A few of you in the room know exactly what I'm talking about, and I thank you for not bringing it up. God will bless you for that. Um, but So it was, it was cringe. I'm going to go ahead and use it. it was super, this whole thing is terrible. I mean, it is like a whole incestuous mess, and he's like lusting after his stepdaughter, and, and he's like, he's so impressed, though. He's so impressed. He like cheers, and in front of all of his guests, he says... I will give you anything up to half of my kingdom. Now, to clarify, is he really a king? No, he's a governor. Can he really, does he really have a kingdom to give away? Not actually. Everything belongs to the Romans. But this is him trying to be a big shot in front of his guests. So I'll, just, I'll give you anything. That was so wonderful. Now, Herodias had already worked this out with Salome. So Salome goes back and says, hey, mom, it works. What's, what am I supposed to ask for? And Herodias coaches her up, and she comes out in front of all the guests and says to Herod, here's what I want. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. And if this was a, a movie, this is where the scene would go to the dungeon, where John is. And in that dungeon, the conditions are terrible. There was probably rats. There was probably bugs. There was probably not much to eat or drink. He was probably dirty and ragged and tired from sleeping on the floor for months and months, maybe a year. And yet, John seems to be at peace. There's a serene look on his face. 
he looks like he's okay. But that wasn't the case too long before this. Because we, we learn from Luke, Mark doesn't tell us a story, but we learn from Luke that when John the Baptist was in that dungeon and when he'd been there for a while, he got seriously depressed. Very, very depressed. In despair, he began to wonder if he'd made the right choice in following Jesus, if he had made the right choice. And he's like, is, is Jesus really the one? I don't know. And after all, doing the right thing had only brought him problems. You guys have never experienced that, have you? Where you do the right thing and it seems to create problems instead of solving problems. See, being a, being a Jesus freak comes with some challenges. If you truly commit your life to Jesus... There are some people who will not understand that. Even some people who would say that they're Christians, but they don't understand why you are choosing to live your life the way you do, why you won't join in on some things that they're okay with, and why, why you can't go along with things that, that you know you, they're not right. Look, it's not easy to love your enemies. Do you have any enemies? See, I didn't understand that. It's been, I went through most of my life without any enemies, or at least not many. And I was like, I preached on, you should love your enemies. And then I got some enemies. And then my preaching changed. Because it's different when loving your enemies is theoretical. But what about when they're actively trying to cause your downfall or harm? Can you love those people? Those people? They're probably in your family. But we're going to leave that alone. Can you love those people? That's hard. It's hard to turn the other cheek. It's hard to forgive when people have hurt you. To do good to those who hate you. Jesus told us to do that. Got anybody who hates you? And I hear people say, well, if people's good to me, I'll be good to them. Oh, well, congratulations. That's basic, basically being a human. If you're bad to people who are good to you, you got serious problems. But don't act like that's a big deal, that you're good to people who are good to you. Everybody's good to people who are good to them unless they're seriously sick in the head. That's not a big deal, but to do good to those who hate you. And when you could harm them, you choose to help them. Praying for those who have hurt you. Not praying that the Lord would get them, but really praying for their good, for their redemption, for their help. Let me tell you what, this whole Jesus life, it's a lot more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's a whole lot more than fire insurance for the afterlife. It is a commitment to something bigger. And as much as I want everybody to go to heaven when they die, you're going to be around here for a good while before then. So you need to understand what you're signing up for. It's a different kind of life. This following Jesus life, you won't be able to keep on doing the stuff that everybody else does. You won't, you won't be able to... Be continually dishonest about thing, you, things. You, you won't be able to take court, shortcuts and, and cheats. You won't be able to do that. You're going to have to live for Him. It comes with a price. Now, in, in John's struggles, he begins to doubt. He doesn't start doing bad things. He doesn't have the opportunity to. He's in a dungeon. But he does start to doubt. So when some of his disciples come to visit him, he sends them to Jesus with a question. Luke records this question in, in Luke seven nineteen through 23, and we will read this one here. And John, calling two of his disciples to, sent to him, 
sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, that is to say, Jesus, when they came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one? Are you the one we're waiting on? Are you the Messiah, in other words? Or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus didn't write a note to John. He didn't write a letter. He didn't send back a theological book. He just kept on transforming lives, kept on healing people, restoring people, bringing the good news of hope and life and salvation to the downtrodden, and then told the messengers from John, say, go back and tell him, go, go back and tell him what you've just seen. This is the real deal. John had doubts, but they were honest doubts. There's difference. There's, not all doubt is the same, y'all. There's honest doubt, then there's dishonest doubt. Dishonest doubt doesn't want to believe. So when the evidence comes along, they're still doubting. Honest doubt wants to believe. So when the evidence comes along, they see, okay, John had honest doubt. He wanted to believe it. And when the evidence was shown, he did. He surrendered his doubts in favor of the truth. So when Herod's executioner came in with the axe that day, he didn't find a man pleading for his life. He didn't find a man laying in depression. He found a man who knew where his faith was. He knew where his future was. Following Jesus cost him dearly, but the price was worth it. When Herod's servants brought John's head in on a platter, it looked like the good, the, the, the good guys had lost. It looked like the bad guys had won. I hate it when the bad guys win, don't you? Herod, the, the dirty old man, Herodias, the conniving, vengeful woman who was willing to prostitute her daughter to get what she wanted. These people were alive, but John was dead, and it does not seem fair. Maybe we should put some perspective on it, though. When is the last time you met someone named Herod? Have you met any human being named Herod? What about Herodias? Let's just be honest. Show of hands. Who had really heard the name Antipas before today? Like a couple. I figured like a few. Not a lot. So you're saying that these powerful people who seem to get their way have faded into history? Yes, they have. A few short years after this, Herod and Herodias were banished to Gaul, which was France, what used to, France when it was barbarian territory, and that's where they died. They were never, they were never heard from again, really. They just kind of went off into obscurity. What about John? Know anybody named John? Yeah, we know some Johns. Lots and lots of people named John. John's a great, great name. People name their kids after John. You've heard of John the Baptist. Everybody knows John the Baptist. Even people who don't do church have heard of John the Baptist. 
two millennia later, and his influence still goes on and on. So in the grand story of history, who had the, the greater impact on the human story? Herod or John? It's obvious. John did. He seemed to lose in the moment, but he won in history. And maybe that's what we miss. Living for Jesus might mean we take our lumps here on earth. Might mean we take a hit. But in the great story that God is telling, you might change the whole trajectory of your family's story by your obedience. All my life I've heard the phrase, don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. And that means, you know, most of the time it means don't get too carried away. And that's good advice. If you're shopping on Amazon or going to Golden Corral, because let me tell you what, I lose my head at Golden Corral. I cannot go to Golden Corral. The corral ain't big enough for me. I get my money's worth and your money's worth too. I can't go to Golden Corral. Love it. Don't lose your head. I don't think, though, that in most areas of life and in the most important things, our problem is losing our head. Our, our problem is more often we don't have enough, we don't have things in our life that's worth losing our head over. In this modern world, it's easy to lose passion. Historically, human beings had a really good passion, and it was staying alive, finding enough food to eat, not dying in a snowstorm. Those are good passions. Life is not as hard as it once was in those respects. It's harder now for us to find something passionate enough to get up and make us, make us get up and go. John lost his head literally. What level of passion would it take for you to lose your head? I don't mean necessarily being beheaded. Chances are you won't have to do that. But what, would, what kind of passion would you have to have for something? Where you lived your life in such a way that other people just didn't get it. What have you got that's worth losing your head over? What have you got that you would be a freak for? What would happen if the world saw some Jesus people who were so passionate about Him that they were willing to pay the price? That they were willing to lose their head? If that kind of passion is there, it's contagious. Passion is a contagious thing. It rubs off on people. And you see revival happening when Jesus' people get truly passionate. I'm going to tell you, the roots of this church are in some passion, folks. In 2016, I was ready to quit ministry. I begged God to let me quit ministry. I said, please. Please open an escape hatch. I don't care if you open a door or open a window or leave a crack. Just let me get through it because I can't do it anymore. I still love God. I still love Jesus. But I could not do business as usual church anymore. God didn't let me quit. So I said, okay, God, if you're not going to let me quit, then you better, you better give me a vision of church that I could be so passionate about that I would be willing to pay the price, that I would do whatever it takes to be a part of that, that I would be willing to suffer for it, that I would be willing to do without for it, that I would be willing to lose big time to be a part of that. Now, I'm I telling you, I did not understand what I was telling God at the time. I did not fully appreciate that when you tell God, show me something 
that's worth losing you losing my head over that he what he shows you might you might be asked to pay that price and the vision that he gave me he poured out on me after that no when you hear vision don't hear like the sky opened up and god spoke to me like mufasa to simba simba go and start a church no that's not what it was he spoke into my heart through the scriptures and through through good teaching and he gave me that vision, and then he gave me the opportunity to pay the price for it that I said I would. And pursuing that vision, it, did, it, it cost me my job where I was preaching. It cost me, it, and it also meant I couldn't move out of the community and go find a job. and I couldn't, I couldn't take a church somewhere. I couldn't. So we went through a lot of years where it was tough, 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 tough cost me financially cost me emotionally and mentally and in more ways but if i hadn't if i hadn't followed that it would have cost me more it would have cost me this some of y'all i wouldn't know at all except for this it cost me this it would have cost me the opportunity to see lives transformed i've seen miracles i've seen marriages saved i've been i've seen people pulled out of addiction i've seen this stuff and i wouldn't get to see that i've gotten to be a part of this amazing community of life and love look man and i'm not the example john's the example it's not me but i'll tell you this if you want to go to the next level of commitment with with jesus it's going to cost you and during those times when it's painful you'll have some doubts is this worth it remember the message of Jesus to John. He said, consider what you've seen. Consider the miracles you've seen. Consider the transformed lives you've seen. Consider the people who aren't who they used to be because of this. See, you've seen this stuff too, haven't you? You've seen the power of God in people's lives and in your life, and you've benefited from that. Remember that. We've seen the Lord do great things. The evidence is there. And in light of that, the only thing that makes sense is to be a a Jesus freak. And maybe we wouldn't have the t-shirt. Maybe we wouldn't sing the song. But being a Jesus freak is not about what's on the outside. It's about choosing to follow Jesus and honor Him and glorify Him even when it costs you big time. Even when it might mean losing your head. So where do we go from here? Do I tell you to go seek martyrdom? No. That is not what I'm telling you. Except the everyday laying down of your life for the Lord. Except answering when he calls. Hey, we have, some, we have some things that need to be done as a part of our church ministry. We're praying for people to raise up. Uh, for, praying, for, praying for the Lord to raise up people to minister through, through worship. Minister with our kids and with our youth. And minister in other ways. We're praying for that. It, it, it may be answering that call. It may be answering the call to be a witness to some people who you really don't want to talk to. It may be answering that call. Does your commitment to Jesus means you've got to go find somebody and forgive them or ask for their forgiveness? And let me tell you, that's a toughie. Some of y'all got some stuff that's been done to you that, humanly speaking, is unforgivable. I'm on, I agree with you. I'm on your side. But through God, you can be free of that. You can be free. I'm really not sure how to end this except to to pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, please show us 
a vision of following Jesus that is worth it, that is worth the price. God, make us Jesus freaks, not in appearance, but in action. I pray we'll be so obedient to you that we'll do the things that most people just won't understand. That we'll pay the price when others don't get it. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the example of of John the Baptist who held true to the end. And I pray we'll be those sorts of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm so glad that you're a part of this. I'm so glad I got to stick around and meet y'all because I wouldn't have otherwise. So I hope I'll see some of you on Saturday. If you will, if you're going to be here on Saturday, write your name on that list back there so we can kind of have an idea. If If we run out of spaces, just write your name beside it. God bless you. I think I'm going to send you out with a little bit of DC talk right now for those of you who know it, a little nostalgia for you. God bless you all. We'll catch you next time.